Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Devin Martin. Devin is a Tom Morgan recommendation and a very cool guy. I will say that this is not your typical episode, but I think that if you are in the market for an entertaining podcast that you can sit back and listen to, this one might fulfill your product market fit or audio market fit or whatever market fit we're dealing with here. But anyway... I think Devin's really cool, and I'm glad that Tom told me to talk to him, and I hope you all enjoy the output. This episode is sponsored by DeLupa. DeLupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. DeLupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. DeLupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. Delupa captures data from all company-reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. Delupa's data sheets include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. Bulge bracket banks and major multi-managers are trusting Delupa for their use in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit delupa.com forward slash business brew to create a free account and learn more about how Delupa can increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. As always, nothing in this show is financial advice. Please consult an investment advisor before making investment decisions. Everything in this show is for entertainment purposes and educational purposes. And do your own due diligence. happening folks we are joined this week by devin martin a tom morgan uh intro if i recall correctly is that accurate that is correct tom has referred to you as a cool guy so um yeah i don't know coming from tom that's just a very high compliment in my in my world i'm always flattered when he says something like yeah, that about me he's, he's a good dude so so what's uh what's your background why does tom like you let's let's get into it <laughs> uh, why does Tom like me? That that's a complicated question. No, no. What's your background? We'll figure out why Tom likes you as the conversation goes on. Well, the reason Tom knows me is my current career is working as an executive life coach. Um, which I don't know if people understand what that means. I can explain it, but basically it's like a therapist. I sit down and talk to people one on one, help them make decisions about their lives, help them understand themselves, their minds, their relationships, their career. And often, you know, change something drastically. I'm, I'm a transformation junkie. So we were introduced when he was going through a major transition, which he talks about publicly a lot. The fact that he uh, kind of lost his mind in order to yeah. find his mind. And a friend of his who was a client of mine says, you got, said, you got to talk to Tom. He's going through something. And I think the two of you are going to hit it off and you could really help him out. And so he became a client for, I, I don't know, a better part of a year. And that was years ago. And since then has become a really good friend. We talk often now. He's just a fascinating human being that I, that I love getting mm. new information from. So you're coaching executives. Presumably these are fairly 
successful people and you're advocating transformation like what's what's going on why why does the typical outwardly looking successful person give you an inbound what what is this conversation typically go yeah like yeah it's true um i mostly work with people who have had it what from the outside looks like a very wonderful successful life and they are usually either one of two things happening one is they've hit a ceiling and they want their life to grow and expand and they feel like they're feeling stagnant, you know? And so choosing to want more in your life is perhaps the ideal reason to reach out to a coach. It's also the rare reason. Most people reach out because something broke or I would say my sweet spot is people say, I did it. I climbed the mountain. I reached the top. I've got the title. I've got the bank account. Everything looks great. I don't like the view. Hell, I don't even think I like mountains. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know? And so I get a lot of people who went to the right school and got the right internship and got a good job and climbed the ladder or became an entrepreneur and started a company and got venture backing and got an exit. And it looks like everything went right. And then they're realizing that along the way, they sacrificed a lot of who they are personally or just never figured out who they were personally. And now that they have the means... They want to apply it in a way which is much more true to who they actually feel like they are. And it often means upsetting people. It often means taking risks. It often means walking away from something that is working. And so I've been called, especially I work with a lot of people who in, in finance, just good to say Wall Street in the broadest sense. Um, and a few of them have referred to me as the closer, the one who helps people you know, they have that lingering thought in the back of their head for years, like, I think I should be doing something else with my life. And then they come to me and we talk about it and they actually figure out, do they want to do something else? Because sometimes that's not the answer. And if so, how do they do it in a way which is, you know, not going to blow up their marriage or their company or their friendships and is going to be, you know, fun and exciting and hmm. kind of risky. So what was your path? How did you fall into this line of work? Well, the career ch change thing makes sense for me because I was in the wrong career for about 13 years. Um, I left high school and my parents have two master's degrees on my father's. My father has two master's degrees in education. My mother has one master's degree in education. So the only thing I knew for sure was that if you want to be okay in life, you have to go to college. Do you still believe that for sure? Well, I dropped out. So no. Oh, there you go. So yeah, I... I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was going through a very dark period of my life. I didn't have any vision of a career or even a lifestyle that would make me happy. And I'm one of those people who doesn't just put their head down and move forward because other people say it's a good idea. I was, I'm prone to questioning everything. And so I was miserable from sixth grade on. I was pretty miserable in school. I really mm. hated being in a classroom. I could get straight A's if I paid attention. I would often sleep in class, sometimes still get A's, but I would argue with the teachers. I didn't agree with the curriculum. I didn't agree with their pedagogical style. I was probably like some teachers love me and some teachers really dreaded me opening my mouth in class because I was just going to make their life harder. And so my parents actually told me, you know, take a year off, go learn how to make guitars by hand, go cook on a cruise ship, go like they had this whole interim studies program. And I just couldn't believe that was going to work out for me. I don't know why. I was too brainwashed that college is the only answer. And so I went to college and I studied sound recording technology to be a music producer. 
because I played in rock bands. Oh, interesting. So your parents said, don't go. And you were like, no, nah, I'm going to go, even though you didn't like school. Yeah. You know, and it's strange. Like they always said the right things and I think they meant it, but underneath the surface, there was a very strong message, which I had been indoctrinated into, which is like, well, you know, you can be crazy and you can skip college, but if you want to have safety and security and success, like pretty much everybody goes to college. So like, you better mm. have a really good plan if you're not going to college. And I didn't have, I, I didn't know anybody who had built a successful life without going to college. I didn't, I didn't have any like mentors or any idea other than like, you know, you become a plumber, good you know, business. like you can, you can but, do yeah. something with your hands. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know like people could start a plumbing business and have 20 employees and make a great living. I didn't see any of that. And so, yeah, I just thought I had to go to college. So I, I went and I was a musician and I was like, I think music is the one thing that's going to save me from being, I was like a math kid growing up. I was hyper analytical. I never had to pay attention in a math class in my whole life. The teacher would hand me the book. I would read through the whole book in the first part of the year and then just sleep through the rest of the class hmm. and take the test when I had to. But I realized I had fallen prey to the belief that the entire world can be understood analytically. And I was kind of overly rational. You know, if you talk to Tom Morgan for long enough, you'll hear about Ian McGilchrist and left brain, right brain dominance. And I was definitely falling into the left brain trap of thinking everything could be measured and quantified and rational and planned and controlled. And music seemed to be like this one place where I was not rational. You know, I could just be totally radically present in the moment, express my emotions. And so I was like, yeah, I want to be a music producer. And so I went to the UMass Lowell, which if you know anything about, you know, Lowell in 1996, there was an HBO special a couple years earlier called High on Crack Street. It was a former manufacturing city, which had turned into a drug epidemic. And so it was a horrible place to go to college. And I didn't love the university anyways. It had the number two program in the country in sound recording. So I thought, oh, this is going to be a great experience. You, know, you become an engineer and a, and, a, and a musician at the same time. And so I realized that didn't work. And then I transferred to UMass Amherst and I studied philosophy for a semester. I studied English for a semester. I studied sociology and psychology for a semester. And at this point, you know, we could get into it, but I was deeply suicidally depressed, just really, really hating being in the classroom, not, not inspired by the adults around me thinking that like, this is these are people I want to emulate. I didn't have a vision for what a life could look like that I would enjoy. I thought every day for two or three years about killing myself. It was a very, very dark time. And it, I finally was feeling you know, lost enough that I said, okay, I, I think I have to admit I don't belong in school and I'm going to drop out. And I made a promise to myself that I was going to take control of the information that enters my mind and the values I assign to it. Hmm. So I love to learn, but... I do it differently than most people. I'm a natural. So how old are you at this time? Like 20. Yeah, I was 20. I, you know, I was turning 20 and realizing that like, I need to be in control of my own mind. I can't be subject to like the way they divide, you know, subjects up. I want to, I want to be multidisciplinary. Were you drinking a lot or anything? Or like what was going on? I had made the decision. I mean, obviously um, you were under 21 and you're a low abiding citizen, but. I, I hadn't know, had a drink curious. of alcohol until I was about 18. But I actually made the decision after nine months of college or so that I was going to become a pothead. I don't know why that seemed like I, I was basically trying. I realized that my brain was making me miserable. I was so rational. I was such a thinker. I was thinking oh, I would be up for hours every night thinking. And I was like, I just have to. I, and I had this intuition that a significant portion of what your mind is doing is nonverbal. And that 
never mind getting stuck in math and quantification, even language is limiting your ability to be present with what is actually real. Hmm. And so there's a direct moment of present moment awareness where you, before you label a flower a flower, you're experiencing awe and wonder at this like ever-changing energetic presence that is the other. And then we call it a flower and we no longer look at it. We no longer notice what it really is. We just have it in this category. And it's just like, it's almost like seeing a picture of a flower. We're not seeing what's in front of you. And I had an intuition about this and I had realized that I, I wanted to get in touch with my mind beneath math, beneath language. And in my, you know, dark state, the way to do that was to tear down everything that was functioning. And so I was like, I'm just going to smoke my brain away. I'm just going to like smoke my rational mind into oblivion. And maybe, maybe I'll enjoy being high better than being sober because I'm just a miserable person anyways. And so for the better part of a year in college, I was stoned most days and I made a pact that I would never go to class stoned, which meant I didn't go to class very much. Um, hmm. And so, I mean, did it you, got so- Did you get more depressed when you were smoking or did absolutely. it help a little? I yeah, mean, there, huh? there were times I had moments of pleasure. I had moments of connection. I had moments of like, I was started, I was DJing at the time. I started producing music, digital music production software was really just becoming available. So I was like digging into some creativity and that was wonderful and often stoned, but mostly I was spiraling and getting darker. And yeah, so I reached a breaking point. I mean, at one point, one of my friends walked into my dorm room and I was sitting there apparently drenched in sweat. And he walked in and he said, dude, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know. I think I'm just stoned. He goes, go to the infirmary. And I went and they said, you have mono. You've probably had it for like a week and a half, two weeks. You're near the end of it. But I was so high, I didn't even notice that I had mono. I mean, I was really just hmm. out of my mind. And so the clarity I got was something has drastic has to change. And a theme in my life, if we talk through it, is that when I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, I've learned to stop doing the wrong things. So I don't know what's after school, but I know school is making me miserable. So I know I have to get out of school. Hmm. And so I pulled the ripcord, you know, and I said, I got to stop sitting in a classroom. I got to stop sitting down. I don't want to stare at a computer. I don't want to be in an office. I want to be on my feet working with my hands. And so a friend's father knew a guy who ran a security company that installed security systems in houses. And he believed in me and he said, you know, hire Devin, train him. It'll work out. I promise. Hmm. And so I started installing security systems in houses and did that for, you know, fast forward 13 years. I've got an office on Fifth Avenue across from the Empire State Building. I'm running the Northeast for this company. You know, I'm a consultant to the Federal Reserve Bank and Time Warner and, you know, these big Fortune 100 companies. And you know, designing and overseeing the installation of cameras, card access, biometrics. You know, basically you walk up to a door, place your palm on a, a palm reader. Somebody looks at you, a camera can talk to you through an intercom, push a button, open the door. So these massive nationwide network systems that were hardware, software, you know, all this integrated together, we were called system integrators. And so that became my career, which became, you know, lucrative enough, successful enough. You know, I lived in Williamsburg and Brooklyn, had a nice apartment, you know, had nice dinners and bottles of wine and could kind of, and could travel all over the world. And it was, it was outwardly, most of my friends said, damn, you got it made, you know, you got a great salary, you got an office you never go to, you sit at home in your underwear and you have like five laptops in front of you, you're VPN into all these different systems, you hop on a plane, you fly out for a meeting, you know, you're just like in control of your own life. And internally I was thinking, yeah, but this is not what I 
want to be doing. This is not the impact I want to have on the world. I'm basically drawing boundaries and keeping track of who crosses them. And then in my spare time, you know, I'm a spiritual seeker. I'm a leading philosophy discussion groups. I'm meditating and doing psychedelics and recording music at a record my home recording studio. I'm basically dissolving boundaries and connecting with people. It's like the exact opposite. It was this huge schism in my life between the way I made a living and what I would call perhaps my heart or my truth or, you know, my integrity. So basically I, I realized I was living out of integrity. What have psychedelics done? The only reason that I asked, it seems like the pot was not great for you. So <laughs> no, I'm my, curious why you dabbled in psychedelics after. Yeah. I mean, the conclusion I've come to, and this was my conclusion all along, but I, I betrayed myself was that daily drug use doesn't work for me. What works for me is having a very strong normative base, having a strong connection with reality and then testing it or playing with it or altering mm. it. So like to me, if you're not in touch with the reality, you can't really experience an altered state of consciousness, you know? So slowly slipping out of touch with reality by smoking weed all day, every day does not help you interact with the world in a functional way. Now, I was sober for almost 18 years of my life, didn't smoke a cigarette, didn't have a sip of alcohol, didn't, you know, smoke pot. And then one day I, I was the, like the designated driver. I had a nice car and I put a crazy sound system in it. I just love nice. music. Like and so my friends would get high or drop what'd you have? What's that? What'd you have? Like two twelves, two tens? I have? had two, they're not even a thing anymore. Two 10 inch bazooka tubes Yeah, yeah, yeah. in the trunk. Yeah. Um, and then an amp running those and amp running the other four speakers. And actually my friend's father who helped me get the security job, one of his clients, cause he was a lawyer, was the guy who ran uh, like the premier car stereo place outside of Boston. And, and all I knew is that the first time I went there, he had Drew Bledsoe's purple Porsche. Nice. And he was tuning it. And, and what he really was, was a genius at just tuning the system. So I installed it all myself. I bought it from him. I installed it all and then I brought it in and he tweaked the levels and tuned the thing and it just sounded amazing. And I was known as the guy who would convert people who were like, I hate nine inch nails. And they'd someone would be like, go for a ride in Devin's car. <laughs> and then pretty hate machine would come on and I would just pound through their skulls with this amazing crystal clear system. And they'd walk out and they go, I like nine inch nails too. That's awesome. I had a system in high school and I want one again, but. I haven't gotten I, around to installing it. I've made a few phone calls. I've actually been looking around. I've been like, is there somebody trustworthy, like somebody good in the area? And I've been having a hard time finding somebody, but it's it's on the list. I, I, I miss that experience of like getting excited to get in the car and listen to music and then just driving around. It's just, there's something yeah. special about driving and music. I'm, I look forward to when people hear the car thump and they're like, oh God, <laughs> Brewster's coming. So yeah, so uh, I, I drove my friends to a rave which, you know, in 1995, 96, there were these underground parties, you know, often in an abandoned warehouse or something. And they all did ecstasy or MDMA. And I had no idea what that was. But unlike when my friends smoked pot and like watched cartoons and got the munchies, they were like dancing and laughing and hugging and having these beautiful conversations. And I just had this insight that, oh, this is like drugs are not just getting stoned and being an idiot. There, it's possible you can have this transcendent experience, like something really beautiful could happen. And so I was like, all right, next time we go to a rave, I'm not driving, I'm doing MDMA. And so a few weeks later, my friends drove me and I took MDMA. And I think it was the first time I probably ever danced in public. 
And my, my kind of peak experience memory is it, it was at a, a skating rink and there was an upper level where you overlooked the skating rink. And on the upper level, there was like an air hockey table. And I remember laying down on the air hockey table with my shirt off, the air hockey tables on blowing jets of air into my body. And there are two girls my age with ice cubes, running ice cubes on my chest and my face. That's not a terrible experience. And I was like, you know, maybe drugs are a good thing. I, yeah, I, I can see how that would this. be the conclusion. Yeah. It's <laughs> a little so then, different than uh, smoke a pot and eating Doritos. Exactly, exactly. But the, really where psychedelics came in was I then ended up doing LSD at right about 18 years old. And it tore my head open, probably precipitated my suicidal depression. Something that was happening anyways was massively accelerated. I had zero context. Wait, wait, this. how old are you right now in this story arc? 18, probably just okay, 18. Okay, I'm sorry. Right did about. you say that? And did I miss yeah, it? Maybe. If you said it, then I missed it. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. So 18, but it's worth, it's worth noting. I was raised fourth generation Jewish Russian atheist. That's kind of my spiritual lineage. Like my atheism in my family goes back many generations. Okay. Um, and I will also say I probably from the time I was born had a deep spiritual impulse, but no way of acknowledging it or honoring it or never mind, you know, cultivating it. And so I'm always asking deeper questions. You know, I want to get to the ultimate questions, the ultimate answers. You know, what is reality? Who am I? You know, what is it all for? Why are we all here? How does the mind make sense of reality? I, I really want to understand how human beings' brains work. Like, what are we doing when we're thinking and creating a world in our heads that we think is reality? How much is that actually reality? How much are we just, you know, watching a simulation that is completely divorced from reality versus directly experiencing what's happening? And so I had no mentorship in this and no, no not even language for it. And I did LSD. And looking back, I would say I had a, an experience of emptiness in the Buddhist sense, an experience that all concepts are ultimately non-existent. They only exist, relatively speaking. Like once you take a perspective, you can see something from that perspective. But all perspectives are relative. None of them have ultimate truth. You could just as easily take another perspective. So hot is only hot because we know cold. You know, dark is only dark because we know light. Everything exists in polarity and there's no ultimate grounding to it all, which makes, there's no absolute hot, absolute cold, absolute black, absolute white. It's words completely fail trying to communicate this. And that's the problem. And so I sat there and there was this visual I had of a word or a concept would pop up on a playing card in my field of vision. Like, let's say, you know, hot. And then it would immediately flip over to the other side. And I would see that the, the polarity, the opposite is cold. But then it would flip sideways. So I would see the depth of the card, but the card had no depth. It would disappear. And it was this experience of trying to find solid ground to root my thinking in. And every concept was becoming ephemeral and useless and meaningless. At word stop. When did you see this? This was when I was 18 on LSD. My first time ever doing This is LSD. when you were tripping? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, mean, I just sat there trying to like find solid ground to hold huh. a thought. And it was all slipping away. And at the same time, I was having these beautiful like experiences of being present with what was around me. But the second I tried to put it into words, it would, it would just slip away and it, it, the words would become meaningless and it could, they couldn't hold the reality that was happening. Reality was so much bigger. And so that, I think, precipitated this idea that I should try to figure out what's going on in my mind when I'm not using words. You know, and music was a great clue. Like 
why do people draw? Why do people sing? Why do people hear tones and rhythms? There's something they're communicating that's pre-verbal. You know, there's a lot that's really primitive in us that is pre-verbal. And so if we limit our awareness of reality to what we can, you know, think about in words, it's like we're just skimming the surface. Yeah. And so that precipitated deep study later on. Eventually, I was introduced to the work of this guy, Ken Wilber. He really gave me a sense of how science and spirituality can coexist beautifully. Introduced me to the word mysticism, which is, if you look at the heart of all the religious traditions, there's a common insight. And people call it God. People call it oneness. People call it unity consciousness. But there's this sense that we are not separate from everything else. We are one with all of reality. And if you look at, you know, everybody from Emerson to Buddha to Jesus to Muhammad, they all kind of say the same thing in different language. And so that was a major transition in my life, realizing that I'm still not religious, but I am very spiritual. Hmm. And I have to honor that somehow. I have to figure out a way to integrate that. That was the first time psychedelics really cracked my head open. There's a later time in my, I guess, my late 20s, early 30s, when I went to Brazil and did ayahuasca, and that precipitated I was another. Ask you that. So was that, uh, this is deeper into your, by the time that you did ayahuasca, you were more down the road of being, quote unquote, a productive member of society, and your head was yes. sort of clearer? Yeah. And what I realized, you know, looking back on this now, is that every time I have a major transformation, it demands translation. So if you think of transformation as growth in the vertical sense of the way your mind views reality has shifted, that's just the very beginning of a process. And when I work with people now doing integration of their psychedelic experiences, this is what we're talking about. I say, psychedelics are not going to heal you. They're not going to fix you. They're not going to like radically alter everything for the better. They're going to show you the work. Hmm. And then you have to do the work. All right. I don't know how we're branding you right now. People were 25 minutes in and it's been mostly about drug usage. I mean, <laughs> is psychedelics like a core tenant of, of what you do? You know, it wasn't for the first uh, 10 years of being a coach, I would say. It was in the background and if people asked, I would talk about it. I never put it up front. I mean, I had written about some of my experiences on my blog, but it wasn't how I sold my services. In the past, I don't know, five years probably, you know, things have been changing culturally. So psychedelics are becoming more accessible to all kinds of people. But if you look at the people I work with who tend to be very successful, very curious, very aggressive, they're seekers. They really want to know like, you know, what kind of biohacking should I be doing, right? They're going to be ones getting their blood circulated, you know, going in hyperbaric chambers, wearing an aura ring to track their sleep. You know, they're really like dialing in their diets. They're really dialing in their exercise. They're always looking for an edge. And so psychedelics, you know, has become this thing that people were doing in Silicon Valley. Steve Jobs talked about a lot of his insights. You know, a lot of the world's most successful executives now admit that some of their edge comes from either microdosing or macrodosing psychedelics. And so my clients started saying, hey, I want to do this, you know, or they started saying, hey, I am doing this. Can you help me? Can you help me prepare for it, help me integrate it for it. And then at one point I got connected to a guy who, one of my clients, a couple of my clients had worked with this guy. He does sound meditations. So if you work with him, he has a gong, he has singing bowls, he uses MDMA and mushrooms. And I would say he's the best of the best. I mean, he's 
unbelievably skilled at what he does. He's been doing it for 25 years or so. And he works with some of the world's most powerful people. I mean, he is all over the globe. You know, he's working with billionaires. He's working, you know, with ex the highest level of executives. And a couple of my clients were working with him. And one of them said, hey, I'm bringing him out to the Hamptons. Do you want to come? And him, and I said, yeah, can I bring my wife? And he said, absolutely. My wife's coming and another couple's coming. So it was three couples. Oh, so boy. And so, yeah, Going we spent- an MDMA journey with people's wives might not be a great <laughs> idea. You know, I think it's the best idea. The, the healthy use of psychedelics that I've seen has often been multi-generational. There's often been uh, kids with their parents or their grandparents. There, there's often been like real healing happening and, and real connection between couples. And, and that experience, I really connected with this guy. We spent hours talking. And he said, you know, I have a lot of clients who have overwhelming experiences and they need integration. And I'm always looking for good integrators. Can I send you clients? And I said, yeah. I mean, like the people you work with are fascinating. And so for years now, he has also been referring to me. And then that has spiraled out to other guides, them referring to me. And so just kind of through referral basis, I now get a lot of people seeking preparation and integration of psychedelic experience. And so, you know, my branding has shifted many times over the years. I started out as a holistic health coach. I got trained at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition doing diet and exercise. You know, that was, to me, that's the foundation. Like if you don't have your diet and your exercise dialed in, don't be messing around with this other stuff. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of consciousness growth. There's a lot of performance hacks you can do just figuring out how to eat, sleep, and exercise. I then, you know, pretty quickly realized almost everybody knows they should be like eating more green leafy vegetables and doing more zone two cardio or, you know, whatever the- What's zone two cardio? It's basically cardio where you can still talk. It's not sprinting. Oh. And it's not jogging so slowly that you're just like not getting a workout. It's right at that edge where like, I don't want to talk. It's uncomfortable, but I can talk. All right. I did orange theory. My heart, my heart doesn't beat fast enough to get into the orange. So yeah, that not, is high intensity interval annoying. training. Yeah. You're not talking, you're gasping. I can't, I can't get to it. I, my resting heart rate's super low. I, oh, I've been in the hospital over it before. It was too low. Yeah. It, it hit 38 beats a minute. And somebody was like, you're going to die. They said, they were like, do you run races? I was like, no, I hate running. It's my least favorite thing in the world. People meditate and do breathing exercises to get to that level of, of heart rate. That, that from, it's for not always people, that's there. A goal. I think, I think like, like when I sleep, it's on average, it's like 41 to 43 beats a minute. Still, yeah, you, you're just preternaturally calm. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should take something to stimulate it a little. I don't know. <laughs> That's why I love tennis, actually. I fell in love with tennis a year and a half ago because it's, I hate sprinting. I hate running. I hate all that stuff. But tennis tricks you into to high-intensity interval sprints. You know, you yeah. run after the ball, and then you pause, catch your breath, you play another point. And I'm just yeah. laughing the whole time because it's fun. Yeah, that is fun. My wife's big into tennis. I haven't played in a while. I'd like to play again. Fucked up my shoulder uh, in December, so I'm overcoming that. But in the next three weeks. I, I feel lucky. I, I did no throwing or racket sports my entire life and picked up tennis at like 44. And so I'm like veal. Like I just have like no injuries, no tears. My shoulder just feels okay for now. Hmm. I have no skill. If I rolled my shoulder back right now, I'd probably feel it click three or four times. Ugh, so it's real stem cells. Yeah, that was, I have looked into that. There are I don't know why that's not it. like just like normal stuff that you can do. I, I also looked into peptides, but I don't know. I may just go the way that nature intended. 
BPC-157 is a good peptide for regeneration. The laws are changing right now, though, so a lot less doctors are willing to prescribe it. But from my research, very safe and often produces healing that'll help you, you know, not have to go into premature surgery. Yeah, that's the guy at the gyms. Like, I can't inject it into you, but I can show you where to inject it. Exactly. Like, yeah, okay. you can order it from China, but don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd like I'd like to have American made peptides as opposed to some <laughs> COVID peptide. Um Wait, but yeah, I was a health coach and then, you know, started to figure out pretty quickly people know what to do, they don't do it. And so I'd say, Okay, what's going on? Your your plan for this week was to work out five times and to eat this diet. You didn't do it. And they say, Well, you know, I came home from work and I fucking hate my job and I'm exhausted and I, I just wanted a beer and I wanted to watch TV and and so pretty quickly being healthy became helping people find the right career hmm. or the right way of showing up in the career. In my, in my experience, change is always half internal and half external, and they have to move in unison. Like You have to shift the way you're viewing your life and the way you're thinking about things while you're shifting your behavior. And I don't think one or the other is ever enough. Like Therapy sometimes is just too internal, and a lot of coaching just kind of misses the worldview, the cognitive biases, the, the meaning-making part. And so I'm always trying to help people shift their mindset and then talk about how that's going to show up in their behaviors. And so career change for a lot of people is the biggest shift they could make to enjoy life more because it's how you spend the vast majority of your waking hours, right? Yeah, but do you typically find that the career change is, is it a mentality change as much as it is a career change? Because yeah, I'm reminded Tony Robbins thing. You know, the problem if you find a new relationship is you bring you with you. Yeah, wh wherever you go, there you are is the name of a famous meditation book. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, is it like an internal thing that needs to change usually or is it external? I come into it agnostic. Most people come to me thinking it's one or the other and I try to reserve judgment. Um, I remember early days I was working with a, a public school teacher and she was convinced that she hated being a teacher and she just really wanted to do anything other than work with kids. And we just got down to like, how are you preparing for your day? How are you preparing your, you know, your lesson plan for the day? And we just found a whole bunch of shortcuts, a whole bunch of ways she could leverage other people's work. You know, she found that if she got better sleep and she had a better diet and she could just kind of like be a better version of herself, yeah. she started thriving. She started loving it. She started really enjoying being a teacher again because it was something she chose out of passion and she had just been burning herself out and doing it poorly, you know? And so great, you know? Other times, for a lot of people, I find the more I work with high achievers, the more I work with people who have sacrificed their passion for success. Okay. Discipline is How often does that lead to happiness? Sacrificing your passion for success? Almost, yes. Almost never. Um, okay. It leads but to it's the nice conditions- But to be able to put food on the table. It leads to the conditions where you can now choose to do things that'll make you happy. The challenge is- still having a sense of what makes you happy by the time you have enough money to be doing something interesting. So most people, you know, sacrifice some of their passion to get some of the money. Like if somebody's an artist and they love drawing, they may go work in advertising where they get to be creative, you know, yeah. and, and then well, maybe they don't care about the products they're selling, but they still get to engage that inner, you know, desire to be creative and they get to collaborate with other creative people and so, you know, I find people like that, it's less of a drastic change. Oftentimes they have to work differently. You know, maybe they want to go out on their own and be an entrepreneur and get to choose the brands they work for a little bit. And then they can find happiness, you know, and fulfillment there.
the path of pure sacrifice, where you say, I need to make money, but I'm not going to hold on to any of the things that make me happy, unfortunately, is often finance. If I'm willing to just give up my hobbies and my friendships and creativity and spirituality and sleep and a good diet, then I could make it through a couple of years of investment banking. But it's pretty hard to make it through a few years of investment banking and have a balanced life. You know, it, and so, it appears to be a true statement. I would say law is somewhat similar and yeah, probably yeah. being a doctor. And consultants, you know, a lot of people go work for the you know, yeah. consulting and, and they end up. And so and so for a Thing lot is, of those. When you're guys, young, if you give it up, I don't know that it matters that much as long as you don't end up with the golden handcuffs. Exactly. I mean, it depends on if you know what you're doing and if you have an exit strategy. And what I find is most people tell themselves a story, you know, when I have a million dollars, then I'm going to shift and do something I'm passionate about. And, you know, I work with people and I've watched people literally say a million dollars and then say $10 million and then say a hundred million dollars. And I've seen people get to a billion is actually not going to be enough. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, a frog in a pot of slowly boiling water where your friends get richer, your expenses get greater and, you know, you just keep climbing the ladder. There's so much inertia to these careers. And then you have the golden handcuffs, you know, your, your comp is delayed and, yeah. Well, as long as you manage your spending at a certain point, you should be fine. But, but you know, then you got to have some sort of security with your ego. Yeah. And also, if you're really starting to become miserable, you start paying for lavish vacations and meals and wine and clothing to try to, you know, soothe the wounds that your work is doing to you. And so for a yeah, lot of people. Yeah, that's a fool's errand, though. No one's <laughs> yeah. ever bought their way to happiness. That said, having money is way nicer than not. Yeah, and for a lot of people, it's just a desire to be connected to other people. And when your friends are, you know, taking bigger vacations or chartering a jet or whatever they're doing, and, you know, you just want to keep up with the Joneses, not, be, not maybe ego, but maybe just because, like, your, fr- your kids are best friends and you don't want to say no to the vacation where all the family travels together. I'll tell you what, my theory with that is if you're a billionaire... And we're friends. I'm going to tell you, I can't afford your vacation. But if you want to pay for me to go with you, I will. And I'm not too ashamed to do that. And if you don't want to pay, that's cool. I hope you have a great vacation. When you come back, we'll hang out again. That sounds healthy. I think that's the right way to do it. But I think a lot of people get wrapped up in this game of trying to Fuck that, dude. I'd spend myself broke trying to hang out with my friends. And then they wouldn't be friends with them anyway down the road (laughs) if that's what it was predicated on. Yeah, yeah. And so I I think it's just... Most 20-year-olds don't think deeply about this. They just think, you know, this is a good career path. I'm going to go down it. And then, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, they go, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, and they reach out to me and they go, hey, I did the thing. I'm supposed to be good now, right? Like, I'm supposed to be happy. And I say, I don't know. Do you like what you do? And they say, I don't know. What do I like? And, And it's amazing for a lot of people. You wouldn't think this is a hard question, but what do you like? Is becomes an incredibly challenging question when you've spent 30 years being disciplined. If discipline is denying your preference in the moment, delayed gratification, how long do you delay it for? You know, it's a tough question to answer. Yeah. And certain things atrophy without use. So you're saying you almost forget how to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. I had a client who uh, happened to be in investment banking, much, much longer career in investment banking, and was really had a, a marriage fail, had, was having a second marriage fail a choppy relationship with his kids. And uh, he was trying to figure out what went wrong. And I remember this moment when we were in my office talking. It's not that hard to figure out well, from the outside. 
Yeah. I mean, stop working so much, but yeah, you know, that's right. He's got a lot of expenses, but he was trying to also just figure out. But yeah, that's sure. all choice. And also 50% of those expenses with that first marriage you could have saved. Exactly. And so. Not to, not to judge other people that I don't know. I'm not. But I, I but, do think that is an overlooked fact. But for a lot of people, it's also, all right, I'll do something different. What is it? And that's where they yeah. get hung up. And so we were just, you know, exploring who he is and who he was before he forgot who he is. Um, and I remember this one point when his face just went white and he just stared at me and I was like, what? And he was like, I'm a singer. And I was like, what do you mean? The and he goes, singer. He goes, in high Good school, for him. in high school, I was a singer. That was my passion. I, that was my identity. I was known as the singer. That was my dream in life was to sing. And I go, when's the last time you sang? And he was like, I, 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 I don't remember. I forgot I was a singer. I didn't know I was a singer. He's like, I go, have you ever sung to your kids? And at this point, he's practically crying. And he's like, never. Like, they don't know me as a singer. I don't know me as a singer. Hmm. And it was like, it's fascinating that something can be the central element of your identity, the thing you think is more important than everything else, and then can be completely absent from your awareness for two decades. That's why DJ Sal has to go to Lollapalooza instead of just running Goldman Sachs all the time. Exactly. I mean, I, I love that as an example. I, you know, I, I actually think it's kind of cool. I, I I mean, whatever. Do your thing, man. Yeah, no, I love seeing people have diversity. So I came up with, at some point, I was having a hard time getting people convinced that they needed hobbies, spirituality, creativity, friendship, the way that I think they need to. They were just like, no, 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 no. I just got to find a better career, and then everything's going to click into place. And I'd be like, you might want another career, but also you need to like, and so I came up with the term emotional diversification because- Huh. Everybody gets diversification in their, you know, investment portfolio. And why? Like, what does it feel like if you own one stock? If you put your entire net worth in one stock, what does it feel like when that stock goes down? Your whole life is over. It's like chaos. It's just massive anxiety. So people do that. They put their entire emotional investment into their career. Yeah. And they have a bad day at work, and it's like their their whole world is upside down. You know, or like if they're gonna get fired, it's like the apocalypse for their life. And I'm convinced, you know, if you're also a DJ, if you also have a ton of good friends, if you also have a spiritual life, if you also, you know, I don't know, garden, you know, have interests, play tennis, you know, have things that you really can consume your awareness fully outside of work and spend time every day shifting your awareness out of work into other things, you become so much happier and so much more resilient and you actually get better at work. You know, it's not a net negative to take time away from work always. It's often, once you get past the first 10 years of a career where you, you know, grinding makes some sense, you should be making important decisions. That, that should be your job. It shouldn't be, you know, horsepower, just grinding, getting work done. You should be pulling back into leadership a bit and managing people. And now you need a clear head. Now you need perspective. You need orthogonal insights that come from other fields. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. No. I think one of the things that's tough is trying to figure out, like, what could I do outside of what I do that people value? Yeah. And I think in the beginning, they might not value it. And that looks like a dead end. And you often have to take a leap of faith. Uh, you have to. Or you're like, fuck, I got to go start over somewhere. Yeah. And that's a big one. Everybody thinks they're either too old or too young to change directions. They think they either need to put in a few more years and get a little more momentum. So it looks like they did something significant and got to a significant level. Or they've been here too long and it's just too late and they can't do it. I don't think there's such a thing as starting over. I know that I learned so much 
spending 13 years, you know, fighting corporate bureaucracy to get these massive projects done in public companies. I understand a lot about how companies work. And then interacting with all the people in those different departments, I understand the human costs of how these big bureaucracies work. I mean, there's so much insight. I also just learned how to be professional, how to present in a boardroom, how to write a good email, how to show up on time. I mean, so much I learned doing the wrong career, supposedly, that makes me able to do my job now. And I think people underestimate just how much they bring with them in the next career. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I just released a podcast that talked about how I don't know if I want to like what I want to do with this podcast. So it's kind of an interesting time to do this uh, interview. Yeah. So what are the options? I don't really know, man. I think part of the problem is I'm a little bit afraid that I'm not employable. That said, I'd probably raise capital for people if I wanted to do that, which part of me does kind of want to do that. So mm. we'll see. I, I know... When I started the podcast, I kind of want, like, I was like, oh, I want this massive podcast. And, you know, Tupac says, like, all I want is money, fuck the fame. You know, I'm a simple man. And I feel like the podcast, all it's gotten me is a little bit of fame and until fairly recently, some money outflow. So I have the equation flipped. And there have been some really good connections that I made out of it. And for that, it's excellent. But, like, when I think about, you know, is it worth, putting in the time to really like make this a big show and then a newsletter that pays some bills or whatever. I'd rather kind of just join somebody else. Cause mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really think it's that enticing at the back end anyway. And then the amount that I'd have to give up to get there just seems like a pretty bad pursuit. It's a pursuit for the sake of having a pursuit, not like, because I actually think it's the smart end game. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, it seems like it's crowded enough these days that doing a podcast to make a living is questionable. But if you're doing a podcast for the experience, yeah, it can be very rich. Like somebody, yeah, I enjoy like the conversations, it, right? And most people use it as a marketing tool. So that's who you're competing with. Right, right. They, they don't need to make money, so they're perfectly happy to just like, whatever. They have a, they have a course they're selling somewhere else or yeah. a company they're running. yeah. And I, I don't really, I, I don't know. I don't really want to sell a course. One, I don't know what course I would make that's unique, you know? But I, yeah, if somebody said, you know, if you look back at a career and you learned, you, you picked up skills and relationships, there's no way it was a failure. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. And one thing, I mean, one of the things that I think the pod objectively has delivered to my life is what most people that, seem to know happiness say connections and you know interpersonal relationships those are what drive happiness i mean i've you know i've met incredible people through all this but yeah. it's kind of funny because i'm at a point where like i'm winding up my grandma's estate i moved down to florida in covid and it was objectively the best business decision i could have made but it, it's not traditional right so like how do you re-enter wherever the hell I want to go after this. I'm not really sure. Will you leave Florida in a few years? I hope not. I'd like to stay right here. My kids are really happy here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been a mass exodus. New York, everybody went to Miami or Austin, it seems. Yeah, I'm not in one of the bigger cities around here, but I can get there fairly easily. Um, but it's just a nice life, man. The kids are outside a lot. I think about the... It's hard to keep them 
off a screen generally here. Mm. And like we were in the suburbs of Chicago. I mean, I can't imagine what the winters would have been like in our household. Yeah. I'm my oldest son, who's uh 10 and a half just got in the past year and a half, like massively obsessed with soccer to the point where after school, there's a big field across the street from our house. He's meeting up with friends and he's playing soccer for two or three hours. They got nice. goals out there and they're just going at it. And it's so intense. And it makes me so happy to see him outdoors engaged and excited to do something, you know, out of the house. And then the winter comes and there's snow on the ground and now he's inside and he's like chomping at the bit, you know, and he's just, can I watch TV? Can I play video games? Can I? And it's just like, it's so alluring. And it's, it's hard to be like, no, you can't because then it puts this demand on your time. Where it's kind of, I mean, it's not on you to entertain the kids, but at the same time, if you're saying you can't entertain yourself in this way, I feel like there's some duty to at least have some plausible alternative. So what do you got? You got a play date at your house and you got to clean. I mean, I don't, it's just a lot. Play dates make it easier. I mean, to me, not being able to deal with boredom sets you up for a lot of suffering in life. <laughs> That's I interesting. I think it's a very important, who, who was it who said all of men's problems stem from not being able to sit alone, quiet in a room. Hmm. And, and I think there's a deep truth to that. And a lot of the people, you know, it, it can make you successful to be restless. You know, it, it can lead to big things in terms of earning to not be able to like, look at Elon Musk. That guy is the pinnacle of the inability to sit still. I mean, that guy is miserable in his own head. Just out of, he says it openly, he's out of control, miserable. Unless he's super busy and there's crazy chaos going around around him. Imagine if he could downregulate his nervous system. Imagine if he could just, you know, enjoy a quiet moment. Yeah. There'd be a lot less chaos in the world. I mean, maybe maybe some less amazing products too, but I think he'd be happier. Yeah. Well, I don't know that he would be, but certainly the average person is not him, right? <laughs> but I mean, if you look at his history, this is common. He has a lot of trauma that's unresolved. There's a lot of pain. There's things that come up when he's still that he doesn't know how to grapple with. You know, this is why hyper successful people today are getting into meditation and they're finding it to be unbelievably challenging because they're really good at going fast. You know, do they then approach meditation from a competitive standpoint, which kind of ruins <laughs> the idea of meditation? It's more like a checkbox. Like, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to do this, this and this so that I'm at peak performance. And so like a, what do I need? 20 minutes? Is that efficient? Is that, is that the right amount of time? Like, which app do I use? And they want to check it off. Yeah. You know, and it's like kind of white knuckling it through. One of my kids got a concussion recently Ooh. and it was pretty bad, but um, we couldn't have any screens on in the house. It was interesting how often the kids said, I'm bored. <laughs> and it, it caused my wife and I to reflect on it and she made the comment that they need to say that they're bored more often. Yes. I love that. Yeah. I thought it that is, was insightful too. She's very smart. I am less smart. There is something that happens when you hold space for boredom where on the other side of boredom, there's this different way of engaging with things. It's often creative. It's often some fantasy play or drawing or they come up with a game and they're being competitive in a new way. But there's a deeper level of engagement with what's happening, I find. Once you get to that, like on the other side of boredom, there's a deeper presence. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, strange. Yeah, it can that... lead to some good ideas. Like we played marbles recently. It was super fun. Yeah. 
I mean, there's, I think it's long been said that good ideas pop up on the toilet or in the shower, right? Like when you yeah. disengage from stimulation, it's like there's room for your unconscious mind to bubble up to the surface. And when mm. you're constantly bombarded with information, you know, it, I sometimes think of consciousness as like a, a body of water. And the really interesting stuff is happening deep, deep down in the deep currents. And Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are like people throwing handfuls of pebbles on the surface. All you can see is yeah. the ripples on top. I mean, I, I once took a year off when I changed careers and I spent a year alone in a log cabin on top of a mountain. And it was because of this. It was because I realized that I wanted to have really deep, really long thoughts. You didn't have a relationship at this time, did you? You know, it's, it was perfectly timed with my relationship with my wife where we had met, we had become best friends, we had dated, she had dumped me. Uh, and I was kind her of- mistake. You were like, well, I'm going to the woods. I'll show her <laughs> how to miss me. Exactly. I mean, it, it was a catalyst. I had had this crazy ayahuasca experience. I was miserable in my career, even though I had success. And then she dumped me and I kind of reflected on myself and I said, you know what? I agree. I, I'm not impressed either. Like, I am not living my best life. Like, this is not huh. the best version of me. And, and again, it was like dropping out of college. I'm not entirely sure what I should be doing, but I'm pretty clear what I shouldn't be doing. I'm sick of the city. I need trees around me. I, I, I need to get out of New York City. Security Where'd systems. Where'd you go? I flew to Austin and I looked at a bunch hmm. of houses down there, stayed with some friends, realized the desert felt, whatever, for whatever reason, it felt awful. Like I was outside of Austin, you know, somewhere I could be on five, 10 acres. And I realized being in the desert just felt really, I felt like I was an alien on, a, on the wrong planet. It just felt weird. Hmm. And, and then I had this like, oh, I need trees. And so I was looking at like Taos, New Mexico. And I finally ended up on Craigslist. And I find some random log cabin in Hot Springs, North Carolina. So about oh. an hour and 20 minutes northwest of Asheville. <laughs> Not a bad spot. You got yourself a nice, uh, nice climate. Yeah, beautiful climate, brutal winters, but otherwise really nice. And yeah, I reached out to this guy and I said, hey, I haven't been to look at it yet, but it looks nice in the pictures. Can you give me a deal? How about I send you a year's rent right now? Cut me, cut me some slack on, on the rent. And I just kind of ejected myself from my life of course shaved my head into a mohawk and went to burning man first because that's what you got to do and uh, and then just went and checked myself into the cabin and i had no phone no internet no television for a year hmm. and it was just full-time transformative work like what are the things i know make me a better person and how much can i do those things a lot of reading a lot of meditating a lot of breathing exercises a lot of journaling dream journaling dream yoga i did some woodworking played a lot of music, learned to sing, really just all day engaging things. I, I, you, know, you know, there's an Einstein uh, quote, something to the effect of uh, the level of consciousness that created the problem is not the level that can solve it. And so I said- How much more do you need to solve it? It's not clear. Or do you it's take not, it away? I think it's a phase shift. I, I think it's just breaking the bounds of what you're stuck in. You know, we, we often have tunnel vision and sometimes it's just kind of shaking the snow globe and seeing things from a new perspective. And so I just had this face that if I shifted my perspective, the path would emerge. So when you came out of it, like, how did you get into starting your own coaching? Did you, so, did you pretty much say, like, I can't work for anybody else? Or <laughs> kind you of, were yeah. just, you were happy with sort of side gigs and said, all right, something that matters, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pursue this. So, so I did the health coaching, which became career coaching for two, about two years before I left New York. And so I was working full-time during the day, and then I was seeing clients a few nights in the, in the evenings. 
And I just didn't see the transition. I, I'm like, I'm, you know, got a six figure salary. I got a nice apartment. I don't, I had never heard of life coach. I, I was, nobody's Googling holistic health coach. It's like a very fringe thing. I just didn't see. But you own those it. AdWords. That one yeah, phrase, I, I was, you got all of the clients. Right, yeah, maybe. Well, except for that in <laughs> New York City, Institute for Integrative Nutrition is in New York City. And so uh, the only place where there actually are a ton of health coaches, way more than the demand is in New York right City. right where you were. And so it was crowded. Even though nobody was looking, it was crowded. Um, and so when I left, I was like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to come back and do this at all. But over the course of that year, I mean, a big theme of the year was developing intuition, like really... What is intuition? You know, how does it function different than logic? And I, I will say I did get a vision. I, I walked away from that year with a clear vision of what my career would look like as a life and career coach that I have spent the past, I guess, you know, 12, 15 years manifesting and, and, and really according to what I envisioned that year. And so, yeah, I, I, my wife, my now wife and I got back in touch right before I left for the mountain. She was very impressed who is this guy? What is he doing to go live in a mountain? Oh no, maybe I do want to be with him. I like it. It was intriguing. You got her back in. Yeah, I was like, oh, maybe he is bold. And so Smart. we spent a year handwriting letters in the mail. I have a, this stack of handwritten letters like sealed with a wax stamp. She came to visit me periodically. Hmm. And, and we fell back in love. And I was like, okay, I'm going back to New York City to get her. Because I had had a strong intuition. I was spent a year in, in Charlotte before New York City. And I had a strong intuition that... The woman I was going to marry was not a Southerner, that she was, I was flying to New York for consulting and I kept seeing these women walking down the street and my head was on a swivel. And I was like, who are these women who are all like strutting, wearing black? You know, they just look like they're smart and confident and, and Southern women were a bit subservient and that wasn't making sense to me. And so I was like, I'm going to move to New York city. I'm going to find my wife and I'm going to drag her out of there and we're going to go live in the woods somewhere. Like that, that, I literally told my friends that. And so it took me about 10 years to find a woman fall in love with her. And then she wanted to actually leave New York City as well. So first, when I left, when I left the mountain, I was like, okay, I'm going back to the city. If I'm going to be a coach, New York City is the place to do it. And, and I had actually had a really big insight when I was leaving New York City. It was right when Occupy Wall Street was happening. Hmm. I was running a philosophy discussion group based on the work of this guy, Ken Wilbur, the Integral Philosophy. And some of the people in the community said, hey, you should go talk at Occupy Wall Street and like give them an integral download which is always a bad idea. You're like, if you're not interested in it, you can't shove it down someone's throat. But I was like, well, who are these people? What are they trying to accomplish? And so I got really curious about Occupy Wall Street and I was trying to find a common thread. And if you know anything about it, you know, there were very few. It was very chaotic and disorganized. And, you know, part of the beauty was that there was no central planning, but part of the failure was that there was no central planning. And the only thing I could really found that bound everybody together was they were saying, we're the 99%. We have wisdom. You're the 1%. You have all the power. Fuck you. Hmm. And it broke my heart. I didn't know that they assumed that they had the wisdom. I was well, I don't know if they used the part. word wisdom, but they had all they, they had the sense that the one percent were ruining everything for everybody yes. else. Yes. Yes. The problem was they didn't actually have a clear plan, but they had a sense that it wasn't working. I know the one percent. I I know people all, all through the hundred percent. I my core belief is there are no evil babies. I don't think anyone's born evil. I think people you know, have life experiences that are different than yours and make decisions that are different than yours. And everyone's doing the best they can. And so I, I had this desire, like I said, let, let's assume you guys do have some wisdom that the 1% doesn't have. You have, at least have a perspective they don't have. How do we build bridges between wisdom and power? How do we connect the masses to the people who are, you know, 
in a different echelon. And so when I came back to New York, I thought, you know, like rather than leaving New York at first, this I actually have to go back in and figure out, you know, my intuition was that the, these people are suffering just as much as everybody else. And, and this, is, this has proven to be true. People who have a lot of power aren't necessarily, you know, thriving just because they have power. Often it's really hard to have power and they've sacrificed a lot to get there. And a lot of them got there because they had really rough childhoods and they became incredibly resilient and hardworking. And so, you know, at the time people wouldn't get it. I would say, let, let me put it this way. You have two choices, McDonald's, okay? Ruining cows, ruining potatoes, ruining farms, destroying topsoil, making people obese. You know, we could go on and on with what has happened, what the economic system has done, what, what capitalism has wrought when the incentives are not aligned with health and planet of, of people on the planet. Would you rather burn McDonald's to the ground or would you rather McDonald's start serving locally grown organic salads and grass fed beef and, you know, like doing better because they have an amazing footprint. They have really smart, brilliant, beautiful people working inside the system. You know, I don't think their intention is to do wrong. I think the, the system has incentives and they've been maximized and it's, you know, there are unattended consequences and a lot of inertia going in the wrong direction. And so what, what if we assume that we can repurpose, you know, their amazing real estate and their infrastructure and their supply chain and their executives and their employees, and maybe they could do good in the world. I don't know if it's going to work out that way, but assuming that the human beings involved are not evil strikes me as a much more productive approach. Like, I don't want to burn down the lives of what do they have millions of employees do I want to make them all unemployed no I yeah well not better to mention options. it does actually feed a lot of people but yeah. I, I don't disagree that it's not the healthiest my my oldest had a yes day we did that for his for his birthday so I ate a lot of McDonald's this week every once in a while like I mean two to cheeseburger me, the meal was fire to me the problem is the fries used to be fried in lard and they were amazing. They were so good. And yeah. then lard got demonized, and now they do it some weird vegetable They're oil or seed good, oil. Though. Yeah, but if, I don't know if you remember. I mean, they were exquisite. They were, and like yeah. the beef that they use used to be better beef. Like, you know, 50 years ago, people were eating cheeseburgers and they weren't having so much metabolic dysfunction. Like, we have ruined the bread is not as good as bread used to be. No, no, it you is know? not. Yeah, no doubt. Well, big food is an issue. You know, it's funny, I, I've been hesitant to do, I, I did a, I recorded a podcast with somebody that was kind of a coach. Her old idea was like, fast forward where you want your life in a year or two, and then work backwards, which I think is not bad advice, but I've I've kind of felt a little awkward having this subject matter, because I don't know that I have any expertise to speak on it, so... Doesn't that make you the right interviewer to be curious and ask? I mean, to me, asking questions because you don't understand is the ideal approach for your your whole audience that doesn't understand. Yes. Well, I think when Tom pings me and says, you should talk to this guy, then it makes it the right potential interview. I was at Bank of Montreal and, and BMO Harris actually underwriting loans. And then I had an uncle that passed away. And it sort of shifted a lot of my perception of what my life would be like. Mm. And it kind of got to this point where it's like, okay, well, where is payoff? Uh, is it continuing down this career path or trying to learn about you know money and finance and running capital? 
I arguably left that a little bit prematurely, but I do. I mean, it was the right business decision. It's just kind of it's an it's a different path than many people have. So it's a a little bit odd because it feels like an island at times, and B, mm. I don't know what to do after this. If anything, maybe this is you know maybe this path that I'm on is the answer. I'm just I'm not sure. So it's just kind of it's hard to have. On on one hand, I'm probably the perfect person to talk to because I'm really confused about where I am right now. <laughs> and on the other hand, I don't know that I've earned the right to have conversations about people's careers and feeling lost. Well, I mean, maybe being lost is, is the in public is the permission other people need to admit that they're lost as well and, and to explore is a gift to them. Yeah, and I don't know that I want to say that it's lost. I, I have a I have some tensions. One one big thing I had to get over just kind of coming from my background and I, I I've seen, I have not seen a lot of building in my yeah. lifetime. I've seen a lot of spending and erosion, I guess, for lack of a better term. Are we talking I, generationally here? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I've wanted to always like leave my kids with more, but I think I've had to think about what the definition of more is. Meaning it might not be a number in a bank account. Yeah. What what would it be yeah. then for you? Um, I think really being there to support their development as humans. I guess the most direct way to say it, and I'm a little fearful to say it because I kind of talk against myself potentially joining somebody else to work if I say this out loud, but it is the truth. So whatever, I'll fucking say it. Hopefully it doesn't hang me down the road. I just think that, you know, what I was saying about the the podcast and starting it up and, and or even starting anything, right? I just think that if I made that choice right now in my kids' lives, given our situation, I think I'd have to sacrifice a lot of important years in my kids' development. And if I were them when I got older... I think I would look back at that decision and be like, why the hell did he do that? Like, I, I needed him to be there more than I needed him to make more money. Meaning taking a leap would require a lot more of your time and mental bandwidth? Certainly to do my own thing, yes. Yes. I don't, I don't know about joining somebody, right? But I, I wouldn't expect equity upside for that. But equity upside requires a full dedication to the craft. I mean, I'm, I have no disillusions about that. This is definitely true with spouses, and I think it's surprisingly true with kids as well. I've I've come to believe that we think about the time we spend too much in terms of quantity and not enough in terms of quality. And so people who have a lot of free time but are distracted or unhappy don't get a lot of quality time with their kids. People who are thriving and they come in with enthusiasm and excitement and they can really just be present... I think that's immense quality. And I think that's what has a positive impact on kids. I don't think it's quantifiable. I mean, look, you want to be there for the soccer games. You know, it's obviously not too far in one direction. Like you can't, you can't spend five minutes a day. Hard to walk in and turn on quality. Yeah. But if you're excited about your life, yeah, yeah. you know, I know so many kids who are raised by people who are embarrassed by their job or just bored by their job or, you know, just grinding through it and they come home and it's just, just like, ugh, you know, and like the kids are a burden, you know, and my goal is that my kids, you know, maybe I'm busy some days, but 
they ask me about my work and, I'm, and I want to talk about it. And they think that, wow, having a career is a good thing. He's helping people. Yeah. He's making good money. You know, he's having a positive impact on the world. And he's like reading books about it and talking about it all the time because it's so interesting to him. You know, yeah. and so obviously it's not black or white. It's not either or. There's a sweet spot. There's a middle way for all of this. But I think if your kids see you take a big risk, that also sends an amazing lesson. Like you can do something. You can be an entrepreneur. You can try things. Hey, maybe you fail and you, and you say to them like, you know, it's okay to fail too. I have tried to show my kids that just anyone can be a YouTuber. And that has been my thing that I have <laughs> sh- cracked their brains on. That is what my son wants me to show him. Dad, yeah, dad. well, now you can show him your video here and you can be like, even dad's on YouTube. <laughs> and he'll say, yeah, but how much money did you make, dad? Show me the likes. Show me subscribers. Click and subscribe. Well, that's a totally different conversation. He, want, he wants to be Mr. Beast, you know? I'm not sure he actually does, man. That's not an easy life. I mean, he's a, he's a bit Elon Musk himself. He he works his ass off. He, that guy is serious about what he does. He is He's not just throwing YouTube videos out into the void. He is calculating. He's brilliant and hardworking. Yeah. I just don't know how much the attention that comes along with being a famous YouTuber is actually desirable. It seems like a prison to me. The money, not the fame, right? That, that seems... I want, uh, I want interesting people that I want to be friends with to know who I am. But the idea of walking outside and strangers recognizing me and coming up to me all the time, that sounds like a prison. Yeah, well, I was having this conversation with my wife and her friends were debating this Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey relationship. (laughs) And I said to him, I said, like, they are very dismissive of it and they view it, and not all of them, whoever, but most, view it as like a commercial arrangement. And I said, yeah, but like, I remember this 60 Minutes interview, I'm pretty sure it was 60 Minutes, that Taylor Swift did when she was young. And they were like, it's got to be awesome. You can do anything. You're Taylor Swift. And she said, I am Taylor Swift because I don't do just anything I want. Like everything Mm -hmm. that I do, I have to be thoughtful about. And I said to these ladies, I said, you know, like it may be off putting to you that you believe this is a commercial arrangement, but it is possible that they're both like commercial beasts that have found each other as a counterpart. Yeah, and like you may not be able to relate relate to that as common ground in a relationship, but it is like possible that they are exactly who each other needs. Yeah, and Kelsey I mean, who, who can relate. And Kelsey likes the limelight. I think most people like dating Taylor Swift would be fucking awful. It would for me, but I, yeah, I don't like the limelight. And you know, I think people in that situation and read that whatever rarefied air or that you know pressure chamber. They need somebody who can relate, who somebody who they can like come home and they understand what it's like to be chased by cameras or have media appearances or, you know, have to be calculated and on all the time, but also to work unbelievably hard every single day. You know, I mean, these are driven people like, you know, you don't get to that level and stay there by half assing it. You know, they're incredibly disciplined. Yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe they really do connect on a deep level. I, I would begin to guess. That's what I'm saying. I th- I think it's very possible this all works out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't have a sense of who's right for either one of them. Yeah. I always said I'd rather marry Miley because I think Miley would let me be me. I can't embarrass her at all. She does. She's already done everything that she, you know, whatever. So she's I she's a little more my speed. She's she she's got the uh, she's got the tattoos and the she's a little more chaotic. Yeah, she is like most definitely that. 
but I think she's talented. Anyway, I digress. Um, I don't know where we were going with all that. I mean, I think we were kind of dancing around career change. My career changes, your career, potential new career change. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, you know, life's about figuring out the next right step, I think. Yeah, this is where I love intuition because sometimes you, you have a sense of what it is and all you get to see is the next step and you don't know where it's going. Yeah. You don't get to find out until you take that next step. But we all want to know where it's going to end up before we start taking steps into the void. But I don't know. Sometimes you got to jump off a cliff. I mean, one thing I realized when I was depressed is that I was living too safe. Hmm. You know, if you think about risk and taking chances with your life, put anxiety on one end of a spectrum and depression on the other end of a spectrum. Going too far too fast for whoever you are, however your nervous system and your brain are set up, there's a sweet spot for you. If you go too far too fast, take too many risks, you're going to get overwhelmed, have panic attacks and anxiety. But if you don't take enough risk in your life, you're going to be understimulated. Yeah, no and that, doubt. And that feels like depression, you know? I'm often noticing there. If I get bored, that's on me. If, if if I'm not feeling engaged with my work, then I probably need to try something different. I probably need to take a risk. Yeah. And everybody's different, you know. Like your genetics and your childhood set your nervous system up to to be perfectly in sync with a very specific amount of stimulation. You know, like if Elon Musk is at one end of the spectrum, he needs to run seven companies that are all in you know, a crisis moment, you know, and then it's you've got wild how he can do that. He has to do it. I mean, I don't know if you read Isaacson's book about him, but he makes it pretty clear that it's not optional. Like he will, even if everything's going smoothly, he will set an insane deadline and create massive upheaval. And then he thrives in that chaos. I mean, he comes to life and he barely sleeps and he whips everyone else and up into a frenzy and unbelievable things get done, but there's no slowing down. It's not allowed. It doesn't feel comfortable. There's uh, who is it? Andrew Huberman. See if I can find this. I have this here. He, he had a quote, which to me summed this up in the geekiest, most beautiful way. When exteroception and interoception match, you are at the optimal level of autonomic arousal. So it's a what technical does that way mean of saying, in English? Yeah, so it's a technical way of saying that when the situation matches the way we feel inside, then we're in sync with our environment. Huh. So certain people feel frenetic. Those people seek more stimulation. And when they get to the right level of stimulation, they're like, yes, you know, I'm ah, on, and I they can back do this. Off it. Yeah. And then other people, they're just like super mellow. They're processing things at a slower pace, which is not necessarily bad. Maybe they're just calm and happy. And they don't want a lot of stimulation. You know, they want to they move at a certain pace. And so you got to choose. I mean, you have two choices. One, you can change your environment so it's in sync with the way your nervous system is processing, or you can learn how to alter your nervous system. I prefer both, obviously. I think you need to learn how to bring your energy level up and learn how to bring it down. I think flexibility is the key to a happy life. You know, I think people who are thriving can be really intense and then rest, relax, rejuvenate as intensely. That seems to me to be the best way to have success and fulfillment. Like you can go hard, but you don't have to go hard in every moment. Hmm. So how do you learn how to regulate those things? I mean, what does an engagement like you or with you look like? The number one most important thing I think everybody should do before you do psychedelics, before you learn meditation, is practice breathing exercises. I would say breathing exercises brought me out of my depression more than anything else by far. And it's the realization that 
your nervous system is the byproduct of largely your breathing, you know? So every time you inhale, you activate your sympathetic nervous system. So that's like fight or flight. Your heart rate goes slightly faster when you inhale. Every time you exhale, your parasympathetic nervous system kicks in. Your heart rate goes slightly slower. It's like rest and digest. So if you notice when somebody has a panic attack, they almost always go, (laughs) they're holding their breath in and then they're breathing quickly, short, fast breaths. I realized, I think depression, this is, this is less scientifically shown as far as I've read, but holding your breath out, I think can be depressive. And just not you think in. that's depressing? Yeah, absolutely. Huh. So if you are overstimulated, elongating your exhale is one of the best ways to find your balance again. If you're hmm. feeling like a little worked up, just practice. You know, people used to like get a brown paper bag, like a lunch bag, and you see people like, <sighs> like breathing into it heavily and blowing up the bag. Yeah. That forces you to accentuate your exhale. It's good to blow huh. up the bag. Um, so you don't mean like elongate the time. You mean like like really both. blow it out. Huh. Both, but but the time the time as well. So there are breathing exercises that are like caffeine. There are breathing exercises that are soothing. What you notice in meditation really quick is it's really hard to use your mind to calm your mind. You know, yeah. don't think, don't think, yeah. don't think is a thought. But if I gave you a breathing exercise, what you would notice by the time you got to the end of it is that your heart rate is slowed down, your digestion is, is you know working better, your muscle tone is relaxed, your posture is probably a little more relaxed, and because of that, your mind is moving at a, at a calmer pace. Hmm. I dig. That and makes so, sense. Yeah, I, and so I, I get a lot of people going to the Art of Living Foundation, which is where I first learned breathing. Ex- I, I have a, an, an uncle and, a, and, some, and some cousins and an aunt. My uncle and my cousins were Indian, and this is a... Indian guru. It's kind of like transcendental meditation. They teach you breathing exercises. And then there's another course where they give you a mantra and teach you basically TM meditation. But learning that I could choose my mood and that I could calm my mind, you know, for somebody who had an unbelievably overactive brain, like when I was depressed and all through high school, I would, you know, go to bed and spend three hours, you know, I just couldn't shut off my brain. It would just think, 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 think. And I was desperate to have a, a you know respite from overanalyzing things and realizing also the tone of your thought, not what you're thinking about and not how much you're thinking, but whether it's positive or negative is emotional. It has a lot to do with the state of your body. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so just going straight to the nervous system via breath, I think is the hack. And I feel bad for all these people who are being told like, you know, you, you should go work a really high-end job you, you know you should work hard for 40 50 60 hours or whatever eight ten hours a day and then you should come home and immediately meditate and it's going to work out and you're going to you're going to get to a place of stillness like you're just it's just not going to work it's too hard it's too abrupt a shift but if you do 10 15 minutes of breathing exercises you might be shocked at the fact that you just are meditating you or you're at least calm and you're able to focus a little more this is a uh question that's bound to get you in trouble but does one of the reasons that tm work like people swear by it is the mantra that it gives you gives your brain something to focus on as opposed to telling your brain stop thinking like it just gives it something that allows it to zone out a little bit easier yeah the truth about meditation is that most paths before you meditate you have to learn how to focus So like, if you look at the eight limbs of yoga, there's like asana, which is the physical postures and pranayama, which is breathing exercises. But then you're learning, you're basically preparing yourself to sit still 
And then you're getting your mind focused on a single point. And then you can do meditation. Like once your mind can focus, you can do all kinds of interesting things. You can understand the nature of reality. But if you can't focus, you can't do much. And so mm. I, I, I've seen some studies that claim the average person can focus single point of concentration for five to 12 seconds, like maximum. That means if you sit down to write an email, you got five, 10 seconds before your brain goes, oh, but I have this meeting coming up or, oh, I have to go to the store afterwards or something. Hmm. But if you've ever been in a flow state, what you're experiencing is a single point of concentration, radical yeah. present moment awareness, and you're Flow's unbelievably the best, efficient. Man. It's the best. And so there's two ways to get into flow. One is to change your environment. So if, you, if I put you up in an airplane and put a parachute on you, you are going to be focused in the present moment. You know? So if, if there's risk involved, yeah. you know, if, if you're standing on stage giving a speech or if you're playing sports and you're really, you know, it's really intense competition right at the edge of your capacity to perform, then you're forced into the present moment. Meditation hmm. is the opposite path. If you can sit still and focus on your breath, then you can focus on anything. Now you can get into a flow state, sweeping the floor, having sex, writing an email, like whatever you want. Hmm. And so a lot of, I see a lot of people who are kind of like flow junkies who just go the exogenous path. They're taking drugs or jumping out of airplanes or, you know, investing their money, you know, in ways that like give them that they're, they're basically gambling and they're seeking that radical present moment awareness via extreme risk. Hmm. Whereas meditators are saying, okay, I can downregulate and learn how to hang out here. And so like in Zen, you learn how to focus on your breath. That's, that's a common thing. You learn how to count your breath one to 10. Um, you know, TM, they give you a mantra. So it's a sound. Uh, in Vipassana, you're also often using the breath, but you may be focused on the feeling of it coming in and out of your nose. I tell people, pick a single focus that is the easiest for you. If, if you can visualize a mandala in your mind, I can't, then and that's the easiest path, then do that, you know? What's a for mandala? Me, it's like, a, see that thing behind me, actually? Yeah. It's like a complex symbol oh, that's huh. uh, eliciting a certain energy in you, supposedly. So TM is kind of a hack where it's a path where you learn to focus and you kind of get to cheat. And as soon as your mind gets focused, you try to transcend the mantra. So it's like focused on the sound of OM. And then when you're fully focused on it, let go and try to be in the space that arises afterwards. And within hmm. a quarter second or 10 minutes, your mind's gonna wander. And if you can notice your mind's wandering, then bring it back to the mantra, get focused on the mantra again, and then let it go. Hmm. So in Zen, you might spend five years learning how to focus on your breath. And then once you have access concentration, once you can put your mind there and it never leaves, now you can practice something like open awareness where you just be in the space, but there's not a lot of mental chatter. So I find it's amazing. Teams. It's amazing how little. I mean, it's it's becoming more popular in in discussion, but it's it's wild how. You know, everybody knows to go to the gym. Everybody knows <laughs> to do certain things, but the mind exercises, I think, are under discussed. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends what circles you travel in. In certain circles, it's like, oh, it's all everybody. Anybody talks about all of a sudden. It's like everybody's got the new Calm or Sam Harris app or something like that. Yeah, you know, and so like I think living in, like, or working with people who live in Manhattan and you know at the executive level, I can start to believe that it's mainstream. And then I talk to somebody who's you know, from anywhere else in the world, or working at a different level, and they're like, "Oh, I've heard about this meditation thing, but I haven't tried it." 
Yeah, well, and it's not just what you've heard about. It's what you actually do, right? Changing your life is easier than saying you're changing it or harder than saying you're changing it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's a pretty substantial shift. If you dedicate, you know, time every morning or time every evening or in TM, they want you to do 20 minutes in the AM and 20 minutes in the PM. I mean, the first big difference is that that's probably coming out of your screen time. Yeah. And even if you don't meditate, just not looking at a screen for that time and just being in your body without stimulation is a huge shift in your experience. Yeah, it's amazing how habitual just like, oh, I've got a second. I'll check my phone has become. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a twitch. It's like a, sometimes my phone's out in my hand and I have a news app or something open. I, I didn't even have a thought to do it. It's just there, checking my email. Yeah. I, I went through this ex- experience with Twitter where I really like my account and I really like the following size of it. I'm glad it's not much bigger. But while it was getting bigger, it was like, it was tough. There was a lot of dopamine. I, I remember like I would wake up while I was sleeping and I couldn't wait to check, you know, notifications and stuff. It was like, what the hell is going on here, man? This is crazy. Yeah. I mean, we're wired for connection. Like what is more important to us than what other people think about us? You know? If- yeah. But then I was fucking off when the people like the, the, the connections that mattered that were right in front of me, I was arguably not present for in order to build some internet connections, which to this day, some of them really matter, but you know, it's, it's definitely a balance and I swung hard the wrong way for a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's one place where I have not had an experience of fame, but very few people seem to handle it well at first. You know, it's like you end up trying to make sure everybody shares your view or at least understands you. Or I don't know, Sam Harris talks about going down this rabbit hole and it becoming incredibly toxic for him. I think Bill Ackman has just recently been sucked into a Twitter vortex that he is. You said it, I was thinking it. Yeah, I mean, I think he'll survive it. If I were one of his friends, I'd call him up and I'd be like, Bill, you know, have you really actually thought about what this is doing to your mind and what, what you're, I mean, a good job on the universities. Think you yes. raised some real good awareness and used your account for the right things. B maybe it's time to kind of put the phone down. Yeah, it's happening. I mean, he, he was so fascinating because it, it picked up speed quick and I mean, just massive diatribes and you could tell it, it is, all consuming for him. Like I can't imagine as much else going on in his life for a few weeks there. And it certainly seems it maybe, maybe he can compartmentalize it. I don't know. I don't know maybe. how you can craft tweets that are that long without putting a lot of time behind them. No. And there's phone calls behind them and it seems, it seems like all consuming, but I don't want to. Yeah. I imagine it could be fun in, in, in spurts to have, if you put a tweet out and a thousand people respond within an hour, like I'm sure there's there's something unbelievably satisfying about that at first. Yeah, and I would not even be shocked if uh, he's has gone through some period where he's like, I've got you know, I've got a billion dollars or whatever. What do I give a shit? I'm actually changing the world here, and this is my, you know, whatever my battle. Which if that's what he wants to do, more power to him. He can do it. I, I mean, know if you get, would, I know if you get fuck you money, mind. if you get fuck you money and you don't ever say fuck you, then you're probably missing missing something in life. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I know that chasing more fuck you money doesn't make any sense. No, it's. Uh, I mean, unless you love the, the game, 
but I was not, just gonna say, not I, that everybody count. talks about Warren Buffett and I think he is the exception. Like, I don't think he sacrificed his passions to go into investing. I think investing truly, truly is what he was born to do. And he loves it. And he is playing a game and he's, you know, he's a freak autistic genius. Like he's a strange, wonderful human being. I don't think that's life advice for everybody else to do what he does. Yeah. I don't think he does either, to be fair to him, but I agree with you. And it's one of my beefs is when people go to Berkshire and they ask for life advice. I'm not sure they've done the work behind, you know, you got to have different mentors for different things. I'm not sure he's the one to, but whatever, man, I hope he's happy when it's all said and done. I think he will be. I mean, the reason I believe he's happy is because he eats McDonald's every day and he's healthy. And I think you have to be thriving on some primal level. To pull that off. <laughs> to over, yeah, overcome that. Yeah. Yeah. I just think he's he's happy because he's doing him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I mean. I, I think he's not sacrificing in other ways. I think he's genuinely wants to sit there and just like read through an earnings report all day. Like he's just a pig in, in shit, even though pigs don't roll in shit. He's just happy doing what he does. I, I think. Do I they think not? No, they're very clean animals. They, they, uh, that's upsetting. Yeah, I know, I know. It feels like everything I've been told about uh, colloquialism or whatever is They all, cool off all rolling lies. in mud, but they would never roll. They're actually considered like one of the cleanest animals in the farm because they separate their food and they go to they have they keep a bathroom place separate and they're they're very aware of these huh. things. They're super smart. And so delicious. you're not as happy as a pig and shit. <laughs> no, a pig would be pissed. A pig would That's be like That's very Damn it, disappointing. Give me clean mud. I this is not the spa I ordered. Yeah, that's right. What is this this filth that you have me in and that you humans <laughs> have created this narrative around? Huh. Well, you learn something new every day. See, there's a reason I came on here. I think that's true. How many people that you talk to are, I mean, like, what percentage of clients would you say are just, like, lost when they call you versus saying like i'm contemplating thing like changing something i mean obviously if somebody's calling and talking to you there's a change they are trying to make but i'm curious how many how many people you've run across that when you start working with them they really are pretty lost you know it's interesting i would say a lot of people come to me not knowing they're lost or yeah. not acknowledging how deep it goes I and, and, and it's true. A, and so I, I have everybody set goals when we start working together. So three things you want to accomplish in the next month, three things in the next three months, and three things in the next year. And, and I always ask people at the end of that sheet, what's one thing you'd like to master in your lifetime? Because I think it's an interesting question. Golf. And I have a whole other intake form as well. But for some people, the goals they set are the goals they want to accomplish. And, you know, they move through and they take action and they figure out how to accomplish them. And, you know, sometimes they're huge lifts and sometimes they're smaller lifts. But for a lot of people, that's kind of the baseline, how they were thinking about their life, what they thought would make things better. But it doesn't take long talking before they start realizing that, you know, these are kind of just changing the wallpaper in the room and like, I want to move. You know, and really this is, this is deeper than that. And so what I enjoy is, is really helping people get, go down multiple levels, you know, why do you want this? What do you think it's going to mean to you? What do you hope, what do you hope to experience by getting this? And then really, is this the right way to go about it? You know, is this really what you want? You know, I mean, so many people come to me for professional development and we end up talking about relationships. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many people say they have to change their job. And I'm like, 
your marriage is not working for you. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about like how you're parenting and whether or not you're enjoying it and how we can help you enjoy parenting more because that's unbelievably important for your well-being. And maybe, maybe it's not your job. Maybe you're expecting your job to be everything because you're missing other elements of your life. How many people work to avoid putting work into their marriage? Oh, a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, COVID brought this home to people because so many people are at the office all day or traveling or on a plane all the time. And all of a sudden they're just stuck at home. Yeah. And they're going, wait a minute. I don't like my home or I don't like the way I am when I'm at home. It's like that talking heads song. This is not my yeah. beautiful life. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that has really created a lot of positive friction and tension in people's lives. People realizing, you know, we've grown apart and it's not because we're not good together. It's just because we've been avoiding some challenges that are inevitable when you find somebody you fall in love, there's always, there's always work to be done. There, you know, the person you fall in love with is, is giving you some polarity. And that yeah, you'd said this when we chatted and I like that thought. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, if you become a little more like your partner and they become a little more like you, you're probably both going to be healthier and happier. And the challenge is being humble and being curious and communicating enough to figure out what those things are and how to do it. It's funny. I haven't, I haven't had a lot of like, marriage issues but i don't know i got i mean issues. i plenty of them i yeah i don't mean to project everyone has issues i i do see no no these... I'm, I'm i'm just commenting i'm yeah but... no no i do think there are people i have a couple of clients right now actually who marry i have two people i can think of who married their high school girlfriend and i just can't find a problem in the relationship they just seem to accept each other for who they That's are good. good for them you know and yeah and they just love each other and it's just like beautiful and i, I you know i'm I'm in awe of that because most people, you know, there's a little more fire. There's a little more tension. There's a little more back and forth polarity. And, you know, their attachment styles aren't lined up or their love languages aren't lined up or, you know, their beliefs about how to raise kids aren't lined up. And somebody told me this, but like the first two, two years you meet somebody, you're not really meeting them. You're meeting their representative, <laughs> you know, and then like after the two years, that's when people kind of start to settle in and you can't fake it for any longer than that. You get to actually know who you're with. I mean, I think there's people on their best behavior, but there's also the fact that falling in love is a form of being on drugs. You are yeah. flooded with all of these chemicals that you are unlikely to ever experience again. And so if you're not aware of that, if you think that that like intense passion and curiosity and like everything you say is fascinating and I want to spend endless time with you and you couldn't possibly make me upset. You think that's going to last. Yeah, that shit wears off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's both yeah. people being on their best behaviors, but also this chemical soup. You know, there, there's all this science now, like neuroscience of love. And one of the solutions is how to recreate that, how to act the way you acted. You know, there's, there are certain people who study, you know, marriage and do marriage counseling who have identified a few key indicators of a marriage that's either going to last or not last. And a lot of it comes down to, are you acting the way you acted in the beginning? Like if there was a lot of romantic gestures and then suddenly you stop all romantic gestures, guess yeah. what? They're not going to be as happy to see you. you well, know? that goes to the love language thing, right? Maybe you, you were giving somebody their love language and now you've stopped. That's not a great way to keep something. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, maybe you have to date your partner again, you know, and you have to woo them a little bit, you know, huh. travel, take, take time off, spend time intensely together you know like figure out the right balance for you i just took a week off i just took a week traveled i i, I 
every year I take a week or 10 days and my wife takes a week or 10 days. We do something totally separate. You know, the other one stays home with the kids. And it's for a week, seven to 10 days. Yeah. Wow. Look at you. And I think we started when the kids were the youngest was, I don't know, five, maybe. I do guys trips and stuff and I encourage her to do women's trips. Yeah. She tends to go with a friend somewhere. I tend to do something alone and more adventurous, a project or something. But yeah, hmm. it's good to feel like your relationship supports you in being the person you want it to be, even if it's not something you want to do together. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, my ex-girlfriend's mother used to say, you got to be independent, dependent, and codependent all at the same time. Mm. Interdependent. I like, I like that word. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I don't know. I feel like this has been a nice conversation. I, I don't know what we've done for people, but hopefully, hopefully somebody's thinking while listening to this. I hope so. Yeah. I hope this is inspiring or curious or confusing, maybe. Sometimes yeah, that's the just best. a good conversation to listen in on. Yeah. Entertaining, maybe. Yeah. Have we been sufficiently uh, comedic? I don't know that it's been comedic, but I'd like to think it's entertaining. It gives people something to think about. Life's tough, man. I don't know. I, I, what I have known is uh, the more I care about whether or not I'm happy, the happier I am. And the more that I do things for outside appearance, the less happy I am. So that's maybe one thing I've learned. Yeah, yeah. My, my company's called Lifestyle Integrity for that reason. I, I had the realization that uh, personas are corrosive. And if I want to live my best life, I need to be myself everywhere I go. I don't want to put on an act. I don't want to keep track of who knows what. It's a form of lying, you know? It's, it's a tax yeah. you pay trying to keep track of all this shit. And for me, I, I think it's, it's what's wrong with a lot of people's careers and corporate America. You know, I think we need entire people showing up whole at work to make products that are good for the world. You know, if you put on your marketing hat and you take off your parenting hat and your spouse hat and you just go pure, you know, maximize profit and you don't have emotions and you don't have your family in mind, then all kinds of strange things happen. And you're generally not happy with the results and neither is anyone else. Yeah. And I think if you can be your full self. Yeah. I mean, a lot of great intentions there, right? But (laughs) I think the, uh, the incentives can get better of us. Uh, And so I I think a lot of what I'm doing with people is, is helping them figure out like, who am I really? And how can I be that person ever? Like, I love now that I'm on Zoom and people's kids walk into the room, you know, and like that yeah. little thing that humanizes people. Whereas if they were in their three piece suit in their office, you know, I might not see that softness emerge from them. Like I, I, I want, I want to talk to somebody about, and it's why my, the relation, the uh, relationships I have as a coach and the conversations we have are so interesting to me because I'm going to talk about a big strategic decision for your company right next to asking you about your sex life or your drug life, or your friends, or your sleep, or your diet. And to me, the patterns emerge when we can hold all of these things in one place and look for the common threads and understand, you know, if somebody's having a hard time managing people, I almost always want to know how it's going with their spouse and their kids. How are they managing those relationships? You know, what was going on in your house when you were a kid? And what, you know, what was it like? Like, what, what if you learned? And how are you showing up as a human being in general? You know, and so... Yeah, to me, knocking down the walls, like I just wanted to be the same person when I was meditating or playing music or, you know, studying philosophy or working. And I think you have a lot more energy when you can be yourself. You know, yeah. I, 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 to me, living well, it's life draining out of integrity, to be something else. Yeah, I, I started talking about living out of integrity as like driving a car with the emergency brake on. 
You know, it's like it moves, but there's a lot of extra friction and eventually things start to smell funny. It's just not optimal. Yeah. You know, spontaneity is a hallmark of mental health. And so if we can all just learn to like trust ourselves and be ourselves and be more spontaneous, I think we're going to have a lot more fun and the world will probably be a better place for it. Spontaneity is a form of mental health. It's a hallmark of mental health. It's a hallmark. sign. If okay. you trust what is naturally arising within you to come out and be seen, that means huh. you love yourself and you expect other people to be okay with you as well. If you have to filter everything through a conscious thought, it's like, oh, I have the urge to say something, but wait, let me check and make sure it's appropriate because I'm not appropriate. <laughs> I get to use more of that. <laughs> it's kind of an autoimmune condition to me. Like, to, probably well, not. I could use a bigger filter, but I don't have one, man. I don't. That's why I don't I understand. To to. I mean, I do. I do. I don't like walk around saying Im improper stuff, but I don't I don't like the idea, especially if I'm going to be in the entertainment industry. I, I think you have to be really honest and take the good with the bad that blows back. That was why I, I was intrigued when we first got on the phone. I was like, you know, it's always like, OK, who is this person? Where are they coming from? Is this going to be a real conversation? And you almost immediately disarmed me by being real and vulnerable and unfiltered. And I was like, okay, cool. I can talk to this guy. He's a, he's a human being. I, I like this guy. Good. Yeah. I tell you what, man, I think it's one of the reasons I'm, I, I do think I'm a pretty happy person. And I think that the reason is, at least for me, I like to talk to people about the stuff in life that matters. I'm not really interested in like what the weather is or your pitch on what you're doing. You know, like I don't, I mean, those are, and, and, and you know, my wife says that I, I make her uncomfortable a lot because I'll talk about things that, you know, maybe she's not totally talking about, uh, whether it's how I grew up or whatever. But like, to me, if you're going to talk to me, that's a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's why I end up doing what I do. I small talk is just miserable to me. I, I struggle in those conversations, you know, but if you put me one on one, on one with somebody, like I want to know everything. I, I want to go right to the heart of the matter and I want to get to know them on a deep level. And I'm happy to share anything about myself that I can think of. You know, and I feel like that's that's where the juice is in life. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, that's neat. I think you probably found your calling because you're interested in the people that you're dealing with. And that that probably leads to very good outcomes. Yeah, people are fascinating when you get beneath the surface. I mean, everybody is unbelievably complex, right? Yes, that's right. Usually if they're not, it's because they're holding something back. Yeah, yeah. And for some reason, I think that's the gift that I was given in this world is that people open up to me. I don't know why I get that privilege, but it appears to have been there my whole life where people tell me things they don't tell other people, you know? And so I take that seriously. That's a sacred challenge, you know, to really hold a space, you know, and help them navigate through things that they're not used to talking about. And, you know, I think if I had to learn that, I, I, I couldn't begin to tell somebody how to do that other than to be curious and to be kind, you know, and to deal with your own shit first. Yeah, and to be genuinely interested in the moment. Yeah, and, and be able to focus, you know? For a lot of people, it's just that. If they feel like they have your attention, then they feel safe. And if they feel like you're distracted, you'd rather be somewhere else, or you're thinking about somewhere else, they don't feel safe. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Cool, man. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it, Devin. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been fun. I, I hope that people got past 25 minutes and didn't think it was just going to be some drug conversation, but hopefully they, they hung around because I think we touched on some interesting stuff, and I, I'm glad that Tom put us in touch. 
Yeah, I will. I will have to send Thomas. Thank you when we hang up. This, this has been fun. I, I appreciate you doing it. Yeah, man. Likewise, we'll be in touch. Yes, definitely. All right. Take care of yourself. All right. Bye. Bye.